Dr. Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. I, I am not up for that task, I'm going to tell you right now. There you go. Um, before we read the sermon text, I want to just tell you that uh, this blue sheet of paper um, that has a commentary on there by uh, Abby Nye, and on the back some pastoral reflections by uh, me. Abby and I are uh, involved in a writing, co- uh, not contest, a writing, uh, 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 not competition, a, a, a project. There you go. I'll try to find my words now. A writing project. What's that? Collaboration. Collaboration. I knew there was a C word to be found. Uh, throughout Epiphany to encourage us further into thinking about texts we're talking about. Abby is writing theological reflection. So what's the meaning of the text from a theological perspective? I'm writing pastoral reflection. There will be some questions and answers at the end. I would encourage you to make sure you grab one, read it throughout the week, and use it kind of as a touch point uh, to apply the sermon and bring things out of the sermon. Abby's part, uh, fantastic job. Thank you so much for collaborating with me in this project that is not competitive. There we go. Acts chapter number 10. Um, I want to read the text, which uh, in Acts 10 itself is just such a fantastic chapter. But we're going to focus here on a broader thing that the Lord is doing and how it applies, especially in our lives as Christians today. Let me begin reading. So please have your Bibles open. And just a reminder that uh, and I, I, I just, I'm going to be using the King James Version throughout uh, the next six weeks or so. Uh, so, um, not, not, this is no shift, like, oh, we're all going to be using, no, it's just, there's some language things that are really beautiful, and I think good to hear in our ears, and so, again, that's, that's why I'm doing it. Uh, let me begin with verse, uh, 34, Acts 10. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word, I say, ye know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up the third day, And showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses, chosen before of God, even to us who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and dead. 
To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. And now, Lord, give to your people an increase of grace and humbly hear your word and receive it with pure joy and to bring forth the fruits of the Spirit in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I prefer... Uh, when possible, to eat my ice cream from a sugar cone. I especially like to do that at Jack and Jill's in Hudson Falls because they put a marshmallow at the bottom of the sugar cone. And uh, it, it serves two purposes. One, it prevents the ice cream from leaking out the bottom And then it soaks into the marshmallow, so when you're done, you get this sweet surprise of marshmallows soaked in chocolate ice cream, which is the only ice cream that should ever be put in any cone or dish, sugar or otherwise. That's how I like it. This sermon, I hope, will be something like my sugar cone at Jack and Jill's, a sweet surprise at the end you will really enjoy. Our theme over the next six weeks or so is looking at the light. Looking at the light. That is what God told Isaiah the prophet to write to the people of Israel. Tom read that for us. Behold my servant. The light is not any ordinary light but is Jesus, God's servant, the light of the world. And that light came, we just celebrated it, right at Christmas. And now in Epiphany, we're talking about how that light shines forth brightly into the world. The light that uh, came at the birth of Jesus. Uh, It took some 33 years before that light began to shine more fully into the world. So when the day of Pentecost had fully arrived, that light began to shine more brightly, and then even after Pentecost, the light had to get out into the world. This is what we know from the early parts of Acts. The instruction by Jesus was clear in the commission, you have my authority, now go in my name and make disciples of all the nations. But as uh, many of us know who have read uh, the book of Acts, The initial coming of the Spirit and the development of the church was primarily a Jewish concern. The Samaritan campaign Philip engaged in, which was very important when he met the Ethiopian eunuch on the road and explained to him Isaiah 53, that in chapter 8 of Acts serves sort of as a signpost pointing down the road of what was going to come in a much more full way. When you get to Acts 9 then, Luke begins to bring the focus on God's mission to the nations. And what we find is that it is reconciliation through faith in Jesus that continues to be the central theme of the mission of the church. Just as Peter and the apostles preached to the crowds in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and subsequently thereafter, 
and they preached Jesus, repentance for sins and faith in Jesus. So Philip preaches Jesus to the Ethiopian, and then it is Jesus who gets preached to the nations. Because as Peter told the house of Cornelius, it is through Jesus that forgiveness for sins comes. That is how sins will be remitted. It is as when you go and you pay the bill finally and they stamp on there, you know, paid in full. So when through faith we receive Christ, our sins are remitted, stamped, paid in full. Jesus indeed paid it all. And to all to him we owe. And it's true then, Jesus, that not only are we as sinners saved, but that heaven and earth are joined together. And that as we sang so often and celebrated throughout the Christmas season, that peace comes to the entire cosmos. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. And as we will see in our scene, sometimes it doesn't appear to be this way, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But this larger picture of reconciliation that begins to come in view in Acts and moves you really out of chapter number 9 and on through the rest of the book is first seen in two smaller yet incredibly important snapshots. 9 and 10 serve as a hinge to the book of Acts. It is as if Luke is saying, what God is doing in the lives of these four men is what God will do for the entire cosmos to everyone who through faith repents of their sins and turns to him. The first man we were to meet if we read chapter 9 is Saul of Tarsus. Not a nice guy. A persecutor of the church kicking in doors cracking heads dragging people to prison some of those people even being put to death in chapter 9 the second man you meet is a man named Ananias he is described to us as a faithful follower of Jesus who lives in Damascus their story is told in chapter 9 but in chapter number 10, then you meet two other men. One we already know about, and we know, we know him pretty well, and that's Peter, the apostle Peter, who, who has been in Joppa, and in Joppa he's been healing people, and he uh, in Joppa had this dream, this incredible vision, and it really troubled him because it involved things that he considered to be unclean that were not at all part of the Jewish dietary system. But then the fourth man we meet, and we actually meet him at the beginning of chapter number 10 of Acts, is a man named Cornelius. He lives in Caesarea. So, so the difference between Jerusalem and Caesarea is simply this. Jerusalem would have been the center of power of religion for the Jews. Caesarea would have been the center of power for Rome over the Jews. You kind of want to keep that in mind as the gospel begins to move out of a primarily Jewish concern and breaks through into the Gentile world. Cornelius is described to us 
in chapter 10, at the very beginning of the chapter, as a centurion. And and this is one of the reasons I wanted to read this in the King James, because I've always liked this. Of the band called the Italian Band. It's not a country western group. It's not kind of a folk group. It's certainly not a rock and roll group, right? I mean, it's not rock and roll. It's It's a cohort. It's a group of soldiers, a large contingent of soldiers that Cornelius is over. But we're told something else about Cornelius in verse 2. He's he's a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. And like Peter that we'll learn later on in the chapter gets this vision, Cornelius has a vision as he is in prayer at the ninth hour that an angel of God comes to him and gives Cornelius some instructions. So in chapter 9 and chapter 10 of Acts, you have these four men. And they serve as a hinge point for the gospel then going out into all the world. And you know, if we could somehow transport ourselves back in time to the city of Damascus, And we could drop in there in the house of uh, Judas where we find Ananias there on the street called Straight as it's talked about in chapter 9. And and we were in that room and we were able to look at Saul of Tarsus who at that point is blind. He's sitting there, he's confused, he doesn't know what is going on. And And we watch Ananias put his hands on Saul and Saul receives his sight and Ananias gives him his commission. I wonder, you know, what might we think? What might we think? And I would suggest that one thing we probably wouldn't think is that the world is about to change. That the man who might be, other than Jesus Christ, the most important man in the last 2,000 years is being positioned by God to go out and preach the gospel to the Gentile nations and to suffer much for the cause of Christ and to write significant portions of the Bible that the church has formed its doctrine and practice around for the last 2,000 years. We, we probably wouldn't think that. And as Americans, you know, our cultural kind of way of thinking would be, well, not much is happening here. Where's the band? Where's the flyover? Where's the fireworks? You know, if we were to follow Peter from Joppa up to Caesarea and he walks into the house of Cornelius, I don't think we'd look at that situation and necessarily say to ourselves, the gospel is about to break out into the world through this devout man and his household. And through this apostle, this Jewish man named Peter. But by the time you get to chapter 28 of Acts, what you find is that the message of God reconciling the world to himself through Jesus Christ has indeed advanced forward and indeed was turning the world upside down or right side up and is still doing that today. So it kind of begs this question, doesn't it? Like, What moves it forward? 
what gets it out of these little places and then into this big, broad place where entire cities are being changed. Riots are breaking out into the streets. You know, again, as Americans, we would assume that some marketing you know, company has been called in, the best and the brightest have been put into action to make sure Jesus gets top billing in the Gentile world. Maybe somebody with a lot of money has dumped it into the cause and they've got a campaign going, you know, whatever it is, the parchment of the day, all about Jesus, you know, camels going down and you got stuff on the side, you know, Jesus, he's the guy or whatever, and that that's how it happened. Because again, that's how we're conditioned to think things happen. But there was no strategy or marketing plan. There was no large financial investment. If you read carefully, what we find happening is that there are people who are faithful to just ordinary, daily practice of their faith. If you read carefully, what you find are Christians who are faithful to the ordinary things. And that is what God uses to push open the doors to the Gentile world. You see, when God meets with Ananias, he says, Ananias, I want you to go find Saul, the persecutor. Ananias is like, no thanks. Uh, I don't know, Lord, I've heard a lot about this guy. I don't like what I'm hearing. Kicks in doors and cracks heads. What are you thinking, God? But what does Ananias do? He goes. He goes. The man is described only in terms of discipleship and obedience, is given one of the most important jobs in Christianity, and that is to go lay your hands on the persecutor, Saul of Tarsus, because I've got a job for him, and you, Ananias, are going to tell him what he has to do. And then you know what? Ananias passes off the scene. You never hear about him again. Ordinary faithfulness. What about Saul? He's given a new direction, and he becomes eventually faithful to it. But immediately in Acts 9, if you were to read it again, and I would encourage you, the first thing we hear Saul doing after he receives his sight, he like goes to the synagogue and he begins to preach Jesus to them. The ones that had given him letters to go persecute the Christians, right? He goes to them and he begins to preach Jesus to them. Cornelius, the dutiful soldier who has faithfully prayed because he knew that his first duty was to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is about to have his prayers answered. And when Peter arrives and Peter preaches, the house of Cornelius is saved and the doors are kicked open into the Gentile world. But you know what? After Acts chapter number 10, you never hear about the guy again. Passes off the scene. And of course, Peter, who's reluctant and doubtful, now understands that God is no respecter of persons. 
And as the sheet dropped down and Peter says, no, Lord, I'm not eating that. I don't eat stuff that's unclean. And God says, what I've called clean, don't you call unclean. Peter gets it. And Peter goes, along with the men that Cornelius sends, he goes to that place of power of Roman authority, and he preaches Jesus to them. You know, you know, we sometimes treat Peter kind of unfairly, don't we? we? We lock in our minds, he's the guy that couldn't get his foot out of his mouth, and he's the guy that in the courtyard couldn't stand up to the, to the servant girl, right? We kinda, that's how we talk about Peter often. We're like, don't forget, Peter's the guy that stood in the house of a Roman centurion in the principal city of power, Caesarea. Oh, that's Herod's place and that's Caesar's place. And Peter said, Jesus is Lord of all. You know, Jesus is Lord of all. That's five words. Those five words, again, they don't appear to be enough, do they? But Peter is, is faithful to the common, ordinary task. So when we step back and we think about how does the light of the servant Jesus Christ shine forth how does the gospel go out in situations that appear hopeless, a persecutor, a place of political and military power? We have to remember that the powerful work of God is always being done through the faithfulness of ordinary people doing somewhat ordinary things. You see, well, well like, how do we know, really, that's the way God, God moves his agenda forward? How, how do we have any confidence, you know, in the time in which we live, that that's how God moves the agenda forward? Well, I would suggest, again, look with me, beginning at verse number 36. What you have happening in this sermon is both a sermon that reaches into the hearts of people and transforms them because it's the heart of the gospel... But it is also a description of how faithful people are to live and what faithful people to some degree are to be doing. First, God is faithful in verse 36. The word which God sent. Who did he send it to? He sent it to the children of Israel. Now, were the children of Israel always faithful? <laughs> no, not at all. But were there some, a remnant of faithful Jews and faithful Israelites that held dear to the word of God? Yes, there were. And God used their faithfulness through the word that he sent as was promised. You have the faithfulness of Jesus talked about, right? When, when in verse number 37, what do we have? Uh, this, this word about Jesus being proclaimed, Peter says. And what did Jesus do? He goes through Judea, and in Galilee, he's baptized, and God anoints Jesus with the Holy Ghost and power, and what did Jesus do? End of verse 38, he did good. He healed. He delivered those that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Now, now I want to remind you, and, and, and often we forget about this, that the ministry of Jesus was located only within the borders of Israel proper. 
Jesus did not like travel broadly throughout the world to get his message known. He trusted in what the commission was given to him. That is what he did faithful every day as the servant of God to going about the countryside or in cities and villages, whatever it might be. And he does good. Through the power of God, he heals. He delivers those that are oppressed with the devil. And then we find that the apostles are faithful. Well, what do they do? Well, they're witnesses, verse 39. Peter says, we're witnesses of all the things which he did in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And then Peter gets to the heart of it, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. God raised him on the third day, showed him openly. And then notice what Peter references here. And it's really a beautiful thing in verse 41. God didn't do it to all the people. You know, God didn't send up the bat signal and show like the resurrected Jesus, you know, like it's time for Batman to come. We got the bat signal now. That's not what happened. What does God do? He again works through the ordinary faithfulness of people. Small group of people as they were. And what did they do at the end of verse 41? What were they doing? What does it say? Eating. And what else? Eating and drinking. Isn't that amazing? Well, you mean they didn't form some campaign committee? You mean they didn't go out and start raising money? You mean they didn't go out and have rallies and all these things? No, you know what they did? They got with Jesus. And, you know, in our terminology, they'd have, right? Well, they'd have a hot dog <laughs> and fries and, and a soda or whatever. And they ate and drank with Jesus. And Peter says, we're witnesses of this. Well, if you're at the center of political and military power, and your strategy is like, yeah, we sat around and we had food. Was that it? Yeah, that was about it. You know, and then we went out and we talked about them. I mean, that's a real head-scratcher for Americans, isn't it? Like, well, wait a second. That's what you're coming with, Pastor? Simple, ordinary faithfulness. And then we have the prophets in verses 42 and 43 that Peter references. He says, and he commanded us to preach unto the people, to testify uh, that it is he which was ordained of God to be judge of qu the quick and the dead. And to him all the prophets give witness. And what are the prophets witnessing to? That through his name, whoever believes in him shall receive remission of sins. I want you to think about something for a moment. We're told at the beginning of chapter number 10 that Cornelius is a devout man. He's following the Jewish faith. What scriptures would he have been reading? Right? What would have taken his time as he, as he looked into the word of God? It would be the very thing that Peter just commended. And that is the prophetic witness. It's as if Peter is saying to Cornelius, Hey, listen, everything that you have read is in fact true, but now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You need to follow Jesus. But is the faithfulness of Cornelius as a devout man to invest himself in the word of God and in prayer and in good works. And if you follow that through, this is the composite sketch that we get of the people that God uses to move his kingdom work forward. And although Cornelius has money and power and certainly authority, he is willing to submit to the words of Peter 
as he knows that Peter is speaking with the full authority of God, the very word of God that he himself had been reading. And when Peter preaches, it becomes centered on Jesus. As it gets centered on Jesus, what do you have? The Holy Ghost falls upon those which hear the word. The other Jewish Christians who had gone with Peter up to Caesarea are amazed at what is happening as the Spirit now is poured out upon uh, the Gentiles. And all of it, all of it, all of it centered on this one central reality. Jesus is Lord of all. Now, when we look out at our region, or we look at the particulars of our own lives or the particulars of our own church, are we not tempted to think and act as if there isn't a lot of hope? Or that maybe more is needed than just faithfulness to the ordinary things of God? Evil runs rampant, violence increases, political powers oppress, wars and rumors of wars. The church, which was once considered to be the glue that held families and communities together, is largely ignored, considered nothing more than a museum piece. Are we not sometimes as Christians tempted to despair? Are we sometimes as Christians tempted to say, there, there must be more that we're supposed to be doing than simply preaching the word and praying and coming together and eating meals together or some such thing? Doesn't it? I mean, come on, it's okay to admit it. We're Americans, so we're wired a certain way. Isn't it sound absurd for me to stand up and say that the way forward for our church into the communities and to see people really coming to faith and their lives turn around doesn't it sound absurd for me to say, just be faithful to ordinary things? Don't we need a campaign? Don't we need a better marketing strategy? You know, don't, don't we need Zeke on his drum set kind of strung up here on the, in the ceiling, like flying down and hanging over you and playing his drums? I mean, throw some fireworks. I mean, what a crowd we might could draw. And it'd be fantastic. Some reading I was doing this past week, I was reminded that it doesn't take much effort to get impressed with things that are shallow and without substance. It just doesn't take much to get impressed by things that are shallow and without substance. And the point of the commentary I was reading is that while it is easy to be impressed and drawn into the flashy, it takes a great deal more work to see value in something that doesn't appear to have value. It takes a lot more work to be impressed and changed by something that doesn't look impressive. A man of sorrows, acquainted with much grief, we hid our faces from him, despised and rejected. We did not know him. To be drawn more deeply into the inner beauty of a person takes a great deal of work. To be drawn into the inner beauty of a group of people takes 
hard work and diligence. And so this is what I pray we will see in this first sermon. That while in fact God was doing a really big thing with the conversion of Saul of Tarsus in chapter 9 and Peter's sermon in chapter 10, and yes, a door was being pushed out and the nations are going to now be reached with the gospel, the way God did it was just through ordinary faithfulness. Common, ordinary people. Somewhat out-of-the-way places. Like the house of Judas on the street called Straight. Or even in Caesarea at the house of Cornelius. So when God told Isaiah to write, Behold my servant, what does he set up? He sets up a tension in our lives. It was attention for Israel. It's one of the reasons they rejected Jesus, right? He did not meet their criteria of impressiveness. They needed more from Jesus, which he was unwilling to give them. The same tension exists today. It exists in this room, certainly exists in our region and world. It is so easy for people to discount Jesus. And that's why Churches are exhausting themselves with trying to make Jesus more appealing or Jesus more interesting or Jesus more impressive so that they can draw the crowds. But it just plays into the basic laziness of our culture. A culture that constantly has to be entertained with the shallow, that has so little time to think and ponder But if we, if we will, if we will begin to see the value, the true virtue of faithfulness to ordinary things of the Christian life, then we too will join in this, this huge group of unknown people who kind of are on the page of history for ever so brief a moment and then off. And by God's grace, pushing the gospel continually forward so be encouraged today it is because jesus is lord of all and that through jesus god is reconciling the world to himself that you and i can have complete confidence that our daily acts of obedience offered through devout lives do matter they may not appear to have much impact but they do have impact when given into the care of Jesus, who indeed is Lord of all. And this is the sweet surprise. This is the marshmallow soaked in the chocolate at the bottom of my cone. That we no longer have to try to exhaust ourselves with trying to impress the world. But that God will use our acts poured out of devout lives of obedience. That Christian virtue does matter. It may not get the headlines. It may not look flashy. But when offered to God, it becomes the material through which the Spirit works and the cause of Jesus is made known to those around us. And I commend it to us today. Amen. Father, I thank you for your word and I pray uh, that uh, uh, we, would, we would reflect on it, that we might be drawn 
into it. And perhaps even right now, Lord, where we need to confess that we have not been as faithful as we should be to your word and to prayer and to the fellowship of your things and your people. Those pesky little sins of omission that we tend to overlook in our lives. I pray that we might take stock and begin once again to employ the strategy, if you will, of ordinary faithfulness. And now, Lord, I pray that your grace would be with us as we come around a table that looks kind of ordinary and yet is a powerful means of grace poured out. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.